Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports. Keep your kids busy this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Right now, Mom and Dad Are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. And by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at Audible.com slash momanddad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 15th, the Sex After Baby edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally 2. Dan's off this week, so we're mom and mom. Jessica Winter, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Jessica Winter. I'm an editor at Slate, and I am the mom of Devin, who is eight months old. Yay, we're very excited. I'm, we, I don't know who we is. I'm very excited. We are very excited. <laughs> we're both excited. Okay. On today's show, we'll talk to Julie Lifecutt-Hames about her new book, How to Raise an Adult, and about the long-term dangers of helicopter parenting. Then, set your alarms, something. Jessica and I will lay down <laughs> some real mom talk about sex after having a baby. Also, Parenting Triumphs and Fails, a listener call about bedwetting, and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Jessica will grill me about my recent move to the suburbs. So go to slate.com slash plus to sign up if you haven't already to hear all about me, me, me. But before we get to that, you know the drill. Please subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word to parents and non-parents alike. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Jessica, hit me with a good one. I wanted to be just like Dan Coyce this week and have a triumph. I do not have a triumph. I have a fail. So Devin is not a very scheduled baby. She has a scheduled bedtime, but I figure, like, as long as she gets a certain amount of food and a certain amount of naps during the day, like, we're cool. I just don't feel like things have to happen at a set time. I've gotten a lot of side-eye from various people about this. We had a former baby... Yes, Allison is side-eyeing me right now, now, live in the studio. Uh, We had a former babysitter who kind of thought this was like a low-grade crisis, that we didn't have things scheduled for her. A mom at a party I was at recently kind of like subtly shamed me about it. And so anyway, I recently signed Devin up for a weekly music class for $175. Music together? Uh, Music together, yes. (laughs) And uh, this would be for, for once a week, she would have the privilege of meeting other kids and sitting around in a circle and singing songs and banging on pots and pans. And I'm totally making this up. I have no idea what happens at Music Together because Devin has slept through (gasps) all three classes so far because she is not scheduled and she does things whenever she wants. And so I feel like I have a dual fail in that one, like I have never scheduled her and she just like kind of runs the household, which is probably not healthy. But I think my other fail is that I signed an eight month old for a music class. (laughs) 
What about this? This is just a bad financial decision. <laughs> couldn't the fail be that you? I I'm fine with calling this a fail, but couldn't the fail be that you don't wake her up? Why can't you just wake her up for the class? Because you never wake a sleeping baby. Wow, what's gonna happen? Is she sleeping in? Or is, does she fall asleep like on the way there? Yes. In the, on, in the stroller. <laughs> yes, we put her in the stroller. And then you go in, or you're just like crap, and you keep walking. <laughs> like walk around the block until she wake her up. up. <laughs> just take her in and take her out of the stroller. It just it seems I don't know. It just it just seems like a compounding of the fail to then interrupt her nap time to get your money's worth out of this. If class it's any consolation, we... I do remember we did a music together class early on with Harry, and I do remember that all of the times were during his naps like mm-hmm. it was either his nap or lunchtime it was like i was like how do you do this why do they make classes for babies when babies aren't awake at these hours cuz he did have a nap schedule and then we were just like okay we're just going to screw that nap and try this class instead yeah uh, but it so even if you were my point is just even if you were scheduling it might be difficult to make the class yeah which seems weird and someone should give them feedback on that about when babies nap yeah, I feel like everything is scheduled for the morning, and it's very there's very little you can find in the afternoon. I've also been prorating the classes. If she had gone to every class, it would have been $22 a class. If she sleeps through this week, it will be $43.75 per class. Oh, my God. Wake her up. Wake her up next week and tell me what happens. Okay. Okay. Um, what have I, you got? Well, okay, my plan, actually, was to ride in here all triumphant in my Honda Odyssey, blasting <laughs> Bruce Springsteen and waving the state flag of New Jersey out my window, because generally the move to the suburbs has been a real triumph, uh, other than the commute, which is horrendous. And if anyone tells you the commute from Maplewood to the city is easy, just like they're lying. Uh, however, yesterday, yesterday, John and I committed a very interesting fail that I thought was worth talking about. So I'll save the general move chatting for Slate Plus. Yes, you have to sign up for Slate Plus to hear about <laughs> Allison's move. I'm sure this Jersey. is going to draw many members. Um, okay. So John and I took two weeks off for the move, both, you know, to set up the house and also just to be with the kids and be around the second week for their first weeks of camp and new preschools and new sitter and all that. And Monday, this past Monday, was our first day back to work. And of course, we had a small emergency right off the bat, which was that Wally had a fever, which means he couldn't go to preschool because I don't know if you know this, but like they just don't let your kids go if they have a fever for 24 hours, which side note, it's like, I mean, I'm sure many of you agree with me. I would be totally fine giving my kids Motrin and sending them off with another dose in their backpacks, but the schools won't allow it. Anyway, the move to New Jersey also coincided with finally getting all three into full-time camp and school, which means this is the first time we don't have a full-time nanny. The wonderful woman who worked for us full-time for many, many years, Frida, is still in Brooklyn, and we hired an afternoon sitter to pick up the kids from all their things. So while he's sick, we have no one to watch him because our sitter doesn't arrive until later in the day and we have to go back to work. What do we do? We text the afternoon sitter to see if she can come all day, and she can, so great, problem solved. But then, the next day, Tuesday, our second day back at work, Wally's better, he goes to school, and at around 10.30, just after we finally done that fucking commute, gotten out of the pits of hell that is Penn Station, and to our (laughs) office, the nurse from the preschool calls to say that now Sam has a fever, can someone come pick him up? And both John and I, this is all over Gchat, but we both really felt like we shouldn't call the afternoon sitter again. We didn't want her to feel like we're expecting her to just, like, always be on call for us. We're only paying her. I mean, we we paid her for the time that she watched Wally the day before, but we're only, like, weekly paying her for afternoons. And we shouldn't be expecting that she can just 
come when a kid is sick and not have she, that she doesn't have a life in the mornings. So we didn't even ask her. John just headed back to Penn Station, got back in the train, went back to New Jersey, picked Sam up. But when our sitter arrived later that afternoon, she was like, are you crazy? Why didn't you just call me? And she said she'd tell us if she couldn't do it, but we should always ask her first. And she didn't say this, but I suspect she probably wouldn't mind having the opportunity to come early and make some more money on every so often. And John and I kind of both felt like idiots for overthinking it and also just assuming she would be so cowed in this new employer-employee situation as to feel like she couldn't say no to us. I think we should have just asked her and trusted her to give us an honest answer. So that was the fail. I think the triumph was that we talked to her and expressed that we don't want her to feel like, you know, we don't think those early hours of her day are her own. And she totally was like, don't worry, morons. I get it. And I'll tell you if I can't do it. Just ask me. So now we know. So it was a fail in that you did not ask for help. And not asking for help as a parent is always a fail because people can always turn you down. I think that is partially the fail, but I think it was more about the like employer-employee thing. I mean, it's a triumph, I guess, to be a, to try to be a sensitive employee, which I'm not always. But the fail, I think, was like sort of thinking, what if this woman won't say what she really yeah. <laughs> can do and can't do when like she's a person who can, you know, like sort of assuming she would feel so much pressure that she wouldn't be able to say no. Right. Um, right. When I don't think that, I mean, that's the, uh, not the case, I guess. Yeah. I mean, your second day of work for both of you is going to be a really high pressure situation. You want to impress her. She wants to impress you. Right. I could see how you would be hesitant to do that. But I think mostly it's it's about asking for help. I think we're always so, as parents, we're always fixated on like, I can do this. I can handle this. And sometimes we can. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's move on to our first segment. But first, a word from our sponsor, Little Passports. Taking your kids on vacation this summer, trying to instill a love of adventure and exploring in them, keep them excited about travel all summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pals Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Kenya or Spain. Your kids can follow Sam and Sophia's journey on the wall-sized world map and learn about new and far-off places through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. And then you guys can sit and talk about what a trip like that would be like, plan it out for the future. Also, as we've mentioned before, kids love getting mail. They love it. Their excitement about possibly receiving their next little passports package might even convince them to do a new daily chore. Get the mail from the mailbox so you don't have to. Every little bit counts. So mom and dad are fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month of little passports today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D-4-0. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. And remember that promo code is momanddad40. Okay, on with the show. The rise of helicopter parenting has, quote, deprived our kids of the opportunity to be creative, to problem solve, to develop coping skills, to build resilience, to figure out what makes them happy, to figure out who they are. In short, it deprives them of the chance to be human. So writes Julie Lithcott-Hames in her new book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Last week, Slate published an excerpt from Julie's book titled, Kids of Helicopter Parents Are Sputtering Out. It has been shared 360,000 times on Facebook. That's a lot. That is a lot (laughs) and has clearly hit a nerve. 
Julie is the former dean of freshmen at Stanford, and so she has firsthand experience with how the children of helicopter parents fare once they've exited the hothouse and enter something akin to the real world. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Jessica and Allison, thank you so much for letting me be on your show. So I realized in reading your work, Julia, that there's this whole continuum of definitions of this term helicopter parenting. It can connote cosseting and overprotecting your kid at all costs, but it can also mean this kind of tiger mom-like fixation on academic achievement and extremely rigid structure. So just to define our terms, what to you are the lines you draw between healthy, involved parenting and over-involved parenting? Yeah, I think today we've got a plethora of terms that all aim to get at the nature of the problem. Um, I tend not to use those, you know, the tiger mom term or um, even helicopter parenting. I've, I've tried to distill the behaviors themselves down to three types, and they are um, the overprotective type, um, the overdirecting type, which could be tiger mom, and the hand-holding concierge type. And, you know, parents who are over-involved in their kids' lives are doing one, two, or all three of these kinds of parenting. And in contrast, um, you know, the right kind of parenting is this authoritative style where we set high expectations and we're very responsive to our kids' interests and needs. You know, but we don't have our own ego in the way. It's not about, you know, what, it's not about us. It's about them. We're not trying to live vicariously through them. We're not acting as if the world is an incredibly unsafe place where we have to protect and prevent all the time. We're actually trying to prepare our kids to be, you know, the adults we will need them to be one day. And, you know, keeping that long-term goal in mind, we have to look for opportunities really in every moment of childhood to put independence in our kids' way. You cite a survey from a couple of years ago showing what seems to be a real mental health crisis among undergrads. I'm just going to cite a few of these stats. 84% feel overwhelmed. Over 60% feel very sad. 57% say they feel very lonely. And over half felt uh, what they describe as overwhelming anxiety. What is the most compelling evidence to you that these dire numbers are stemming directly from over-involved or over-directive parenting? Well, 10 years ago, when I first wrote my, uh, my first piece about um, the harm of over-involved parenting, you know, all I had were my hunches. I saw parents increasingly involved in the life of the university and increasingly involved in the day-to-day aspects of their sons and daughters' life as college students. You know, at the same time, I saw students who were quite relieved when mom or dad would step in to make a decision, solve a problem, argue with an outcome. And so my hunch said, wait a minute, this isn't right. If a person actually doesn't do the work of living, of deciding, of resolving things for themselves, you know, are they actually leading their own life or is life being lived for them? This was a hunch I had 10 years ago. I'm both saddened and and thrilled to see that folks in the psychology community are starting to come out with these studies, such as those cited in the Slate piece, that show that, yeah, the number of college students who are suffering from mental health difficulties is really spiking. And, of course, there are additional studies that show a connection between over-involved parenting styles and kind of an, under, an underdeveloped sense of self, um, which apparently does lead to mental health problems. So, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I am deeply interested in the studies that have been coming out in the last few years that confirmed the hunch I had as a college dean that, hey, this over-involvement, you know, really leads to what I call 
in existential impotence. You know, they can look really accomplished on paper, on their transcripts, on their quote-unquote childhood resumes, you know, but if mom or dad have kind of smoothed the path, made every decision, and, you know, argued with all the adults in their lives, you know, have have these young people really done the stuff of living their own lives? And my my sense was no, and I think the studies that are coming out is really bearing that out. So I'm curious what you think caused this. Where did this come from? Is part of it technology that we're always connected to our kids? And so, you know, as opposed to like having to drive, you know, hundreds of miles to college, we can just Facebook message them to find out how they did in their test. Is it a backlash to 70s style parenting? Is it like a new sort of professional, not new, but new in the long term (laughs) professional drive that mothers have that maybe the feelings that they have about ambition passed along to their kids? Well, yes and no. You listed a lot of things there, and they're all good ideas. Here's my take. First of all, technology did not cause this. How do I know? Because I was writing about, you know, overparenting before parents and uh, teenagers were texting each other and using Facebook every day. Is it the bad economy? Some people would say. Again, I would say no. We had over-involved parents, you know, hovering over the lives of their sons and daughters even before the Great Recession hit in late 2008. Um, so let me let me go back a couple, three, four decades, I've lost track of time, um, to the early 80s and tell you what was happening then that really was the catalyst for what we see now. Um, Number one, uh, our fear of stranger danger was born in the early 1980s with a couple of well-publicized tragic cases of child abduction by strangers and their subsequent murder. And uh, we really became fearful as a nation that strangers were lurking on every corner and we put missing kids' faces on milk boxes and Unfortunately, we lumped in the statistics of runaway kids and custodial dispute situations with the really infinitesimally small number of actual stranger abduction cases. So we, we developed an irrational fear of you know, the, the likelihood of stranger danger, stranger abduction um, in those early years in the 1980s, and that's just grown and grown since then. In addition to stranger danger, we developed a play date in 1984, a really practical thing that arose, I'm guessing, because moms were going back to the workplace and dads weren't exactly staying home. So play between kids had to be organized. You know, it wasn't the case anymore that you could just count on an adult being home after school and throw the doors open and let kids play and go and find one another. So parents began organizing play as a practical matter, but then it devolved into uh, supervising play and intervening with play and structuring play and so on. And uh, play became no longer this, you know, domain of children and became really something that, that parents were highly involved in. The third thing was the publication of A Nation at Risk, which was a book that said American teenagers weren't faring very well as against their international counterparts um, when it came to, you know, academic skills. And so we began to test more and teach to the test more and pile on more homework. And the fourth thing was the self-esteem movement, also in play in the early to mid-1980s, which said, hey, let's just applaud them for showing up, trophies for just participating, certificates, ribbons abounded. Um, When you look at the confluence of these factors, you know, stranger danger, play date, nation at risk, about academic outcomes, and um, the self-esteem movement, we began to have adults encroaching in domains that used to be um, you know, primarily that of children. Now, fast forward to the late 1990s when we first began to see parents showing up on college campuses. Well, guess what? Those parents in, let's call it 1998, with their 18-year-olds were the parents of the very same kids subjected to the first wave of stranger danger fears, play date, self-esteem, and a nation at risk. So um, that's how it happened. And I will add that these were baby boom parents who 
quite ironically, having championed the rights of the individual and demanded a voice for themselves as teenagers and young adults, began to question authority now on behalf of their own kids, kind of supplanting themselves in their own kids' lives in a way that quite ironically deprives their own kids of the very autonomy that they, the baby boomers themselves, demanded in their own young adulthood. Julie, I'm wondering, you were an observer as a dean of freshmen at Stanford, but you were also raising two children. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, since you, were very, since you were part of this environment, if you ever found yourself veering toward any of these kind of over-involved parenting traps that you describe. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> if anyone picks up my book, How to Raise an Adult, you won't find it to be a critique of other people. You'll find it to be me saying, hey, we are overparenting, and I really do cop to my own overparenting tendencies. I tell you what, I had an aha moment uh, back in 2009. My own kids were 8 and 10 at the time. They're, they're now almost 14 and just turned 16. Okay, so back in 2009, I had just given a big talk to parents of Stanford freshmen. It was orientation, you know, the first night of orientation. We had a big dinner, 2,500 parents. And, you know, the message we tried to send in that dinner is a very compassionate one, but also a very clear one. Number one, trust that your son or daughter has earned their spot and has what it takes to succeed here. Number two, trust that the university is going to do all it can to provide an amazing education for them. And number three, back off. Go home. <laughs> Please leave. <laughs> and, you know, we tried to deliver this message as, as um, thoughtfully as possible, but it was, you know, really we were trying to send a clear message that, hey, folks, it's, you're done. Really back off. So we gave this talk, and then the next day, I was at home for dinner with my own family, my husband, my two kids, and I sat down for dinner, and I leaned over and began cutting my son's meat, and he was 10 years old. And I felt that I was being visited by the ghost of, you know, Christmas future. If you want <laughs> your kid to be independent one day, you have to stop cutting their meat. And I, I, it was literally, I sat up ramrod straight, and I thought, oh, my gosh, when do I stop cutting their meat? <laughs> and further, when do I let them cross the street? And when do I let them talk to strangers, you know? And I was able to see the link between what I was doing at my dining table with my adorable 8- and 10-year-olds and, you know, the tremendous involvement in the lives of 18-year-olds that I was seeing on my campus. And right then I thought, oh, I'm so lucky that I've seen, I've kind of seen into the future with other people's kids. You know, it sent me hightailing it back home to figure out, wait a minute, how do I foster independence in my own two kids, not continuing to foster dependence? So that connection is really important to me personally. I think I don't think of myself as a parent who will care about my child getting into the best school or will, you know, be feel a lot, I hope, put a, will not put a lot of pressure on my children about academics like that. However, I am definitely the hand-holding concierge that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. I, like, carry my six-year-old's backpack to camp when he complains that it's heavy, and I get them water when they ask for water. And, you know, I sometimes think of those things as pretty innocent, helpful <laughs> mother uh, task. Although, I, I mean, we certainly, I certainly roll my eyes about it and sometimes say, get your own water. But, yeah, I can see how that, how that can, can spiral. Exactly. And, of course, we love our kids. we fiercely adore them, and as well we should. And it's nice to be helpful to them, and we feel useful when we do these things. And, you know, they smile at us when we do these things. And so we get all kinds of positive reinforcement when we help them in the ways you've described. But here's what I'm going to say. At some point, your kid will be 18. And I promise you, if you've always been the one to carry the backpack and remember the homework and, you know, pack the lunch and fill the car with gas and, you know, talk to the teacher when things go wrong, they will not know how to do it for themselves. 
I promise you. And they'll be bewildered out in the world. They'll be chronologically adult with a body and face and mind in theory of, you know, an 18-year-old, and yet they're going to lack the skills and they're going to be so bewildered and frightened and ultimately, I think, resentful of how they were raised. Yeah. I also wonder how much of it is not just things like that, but like emotional, you know, I am much more connected and was growing up much more emotionally connected, I think, to my mom in a way like we were in a way friends. She was a baby boomer. I was in college in 1988, (laughs) like you said. 98. I mean, 1998. I'm sorry. And I depended on like I would call her at night to tell her all about my day and depended on her for like emotional reinforcement and support in a way that I don't think she ever did with her mother. They were very, very close, but there was like a really clear line between mother and daughter. Um, And I I see with my own children sort of passing along what I'm doing with my mom. And part of that is probably really not great. Well, look, I've already admitted that I've had these overparenting tendencies myself. Now I'm going to say I never intended to be a parenting expert. You know, I wrote this book because I was a college dean, really empathetic toward my own students who seem to be, you know, underdeveloped as adults. You know, so I'm muddling through this as, as everyone is, okay? There is no black or white, right or wrong here. You know, that's my lead in to saying, of course, it's wonderful to talk to your mom or your dad regularly when you're in college. You know, of course, these close relationships are beautiful. And, you know, yeah, in the 1970s, when I was growing up, you know, we were the latchkey generation. Our moms were the ones who went back to work and no one was home in the afternoon. And we let ourselves in and fed ourselves snack and, you know, monitored our own homework. And I think there are many of us in Gen X who are now you know, parenting the way the baby boom did, in part because that's how parenting is in America these days, but also with a memory of maybe we felt a little lonely, you know, in our childhood. So there is a sweet spot here. I think it comes down to what you're talking to your college son or daughter about on the phone every night. You know, I think calling, whether your son or daughter calls home from college or you call them or you're texting or on Facebook or whatever, you know, saying, hey, I love you. How are you guys doing? You know, what's happening with, you know, my little brother or sister or my pet dog? You know, that's all wonderful. But if a college student is relying on mom or dad to tell them what to do, what choices to make, you know, how to resolve a problem, you know, that's a dependency that is unhealthy at that point. And the best thing a parent of a college-aged son or daughter can do, you know, when that son or daughter calls home with a problem, the parent can say, wow, that sounds really you know, challenging or really unfortunate or really sad or whatever, you know, and then they should say, honey, how do you think you're going to handle that? And the son or daughter will say, well, I don't know. Tell me what, you know, what do you think? And say, well, actually, you know, you know, you're old enough to figure this out. We really trust you. You know, you've got good instincts. Um, tell us what you have in mind. And, you know, we, we can share our thoughts. But, you know, this is really for you to decide. You know, it's that simple shift. It's almost a linguistic shift from the from we are going to solve this to, you know, putting the, the responsibility, you know, where it belongs, which is with that adult son or daughter. Okay, so those are some tips about how parents can change. Last question is, I'm just wondering when you think is too late. Like when, (laughs) if if people start, you know, changing their behavior when their children are teenagers, for instance, like when, can that impact things? You know what, I'm going to say it's never too late. I believe in humans, I believe in all of us, and I think, you know, whatever we're doing when we discover, hey, this isn't the right course, you know, we're smart enough to be able to take stock of that and head off in a new direction. So I don't think it's ever too late. For those who are listening who've got 20-somethings who have failed to launch or even young 30-somethings who've failed to launch, I mean, this is something that can still be turned around, sometimes with therapy, you know, certainly with constructive conversation about taking responsibility, you know, for one's own life. It's certainly not too late if your kid is a teenager. But Time is is precious at that point. So I would say, 
you know, sit down with your partner. If you're raising your kid with someone else, sit down with that person, get on the same page and figure out, you know, okay, we're going to talk to our kids and say, guess what, guys, it's time to start doing chores, <laughs> you know. Guess what, guys, it's time for you to fill out your own forms for camp, you know. Um, or let's talk about how we're going to approach h- homework this year at school. You know, when you've got a problem, you know, we'll do our best to give you our thoughts about, you know, how you might approach it, but we're not going to do it for you. You know, whatever your over-involved parenting, you know, may look like, be very direct with your kids that you realize, hey, it's time for us to give you more independence because one day you're not going to be living under our roof, and we want you to have the skills to get out there and thrive in the world, not to always need us. Julie Lithcott-Hames is the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, hey, Julie. great to be on Mom and Dad are Fighting, or in this case, Mom and Mom are Fighting. <laughs> or agreeing. <laughs> our second sponsor this week is Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And as a special offer for mom and dad or fighting listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash mom and dad, download a title for free and start listening. It's just that easy. Since we've been talking a lot about anxious parents and hyper-competitive environments, our recommendation this week is Maria Semple's great comic novel, Where Do You Go, Bernadette, which is narrated by Kathleen Wilhoyt. I love this book. It's about a once-renowned and now-reclusive architect, the Bernadette of the title, and her very close and complicated relationship with her overachieving daughter and their extremely fraught and alienated relationship with the super-intense private school milieu of uh, Microsoft employees in Seattle, where the book is set. Uh, it's warm and funny and strange, and it's it's just kind of a great summer read about a family trying to hang together despite some long odds. So if you want to check out Where Do You Go, Bernadette, or any of Audible's hundreds of thousands of other great titles, go to audible.com slash momanddad. That's audible.com slash M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D, and get started today. Okay, on to our listener call. Okay, each week we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us or one you'd like us to find an expert to answer, call us. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Now, on to this week's listener call from Lizzie in London. Um, My daughter just turned five years old. She's daytime potty trained at two and a half, but she still wears a nappy. I guess you would call it a diaper at night. The nappy is always wet in the morning and she knows she can get up and go to the bathroom in the night if she needs to. And I've even told her she can come and wake me up to go with her if she wants to. But she just doesn't wake up when she needs to go. We've tried going cold turkey on the nappy to see if she was just using it out of laziness. But after three consecutive nights when I had to change wet sheets at 3am, we gave up and went back to nappies. Is this normal at five years old? I wouldn't be too concerned that my daughter is feeling anxious about it. She knows that her friends no longer wear nappies in bed, and she recently got invited to her first overnight sleepover for a friend's birthday, and we had to say no because she didn't want them to know about the nappies. I don't want her to feel ashamed about this problem. I know she'll eventually figure it out, but I don't know how to best talk to her or help her so that she doesn't feel bad, and I'd really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. So Jessica and I both really wanted to answer your question, Lizzie, but we also both felt ill-equipped to do so. So we've called Dr. TJ Gold of Tribeca Pediatrics in New York, um, and she's on the line with us to help us out and help you out. Hi, Dr. Gold. Hello, hello. So what do you think? Well, one of the most common concepts that parents sometimes feel confused or concerned about is confusing a child being potty trained, which is a conscious choice when you're awake, versus being continent, 
which is, you know, not having a choice. Heavy sleepers tend to take a long time to be continent at night. So the child isn't essentially doing anything wrong. Certainly the cold turkey approach, honestly, I never find works out. The poor child wakes up in a wet bed feeling like they did something wrong. And that's not at all the case. It's almost like a hormonal axis that matures where the child, you know, is, you know, awoken up by the sense of a bladder stretching. And there is a reason why these nighttime diapers come in in 10T, 11T for a reason. And I would say at least half the parents that come in for these types of consults, we end up finding out that one of the parents didn't stop wetting until six, seven, or eight years old. You know, it's, it also runs in families. But this is the thing is it's not that she is not potty trained. It's just that her body is still waiting for the maturity to realize that she needs to wake up and go to the bathroom. So are there any strategies other than or in addition to wearing these nighttime, uh, what the what Lizzie called nappies, or is it just weighted out? Well, generally it's weighted out, but the thing is, especially when the children get past the age of five or six, you know, they do start to feel a little embarrassed because they're really striving for their independence and being, quote, you know, big girls, big boys. So a couple of things I've done, and I always recommend to parents is, one, imagine if you're 10 and you're going to sleepaway camp and you still occasionally wet the bed, you know. Um, what, what we'll do with some of the kids, especially on like a sleepover, is I'll have the parents actually get a maxi pad, like a feminine hygiene pad, and slip it in there so that the other girls may not know, or even if the other girls know or don't even care, they may be wearing a pull-up at night, too, at five, six, seven. At least they have that opportunity to not feel embarrassed and enough where they can kind of wake themselves up or, you know, soak through um, a maxi. I find that works, and the kids feel good about it. I always have the parent talk to the parent, the other parent of the sleepover, um, just to work with the, the conversation and speaking directly to the child and making sure they're very clear they are not doing anything wrong. It's just something that they will outgrow so that we don't make the child feel bad and make them feel ashamed or concerned or anxious about it. We need to step away because there are no tricks, and they were tried years ago with alarm clocks, waking the child up. Never worked because... You know, all it did was mean less urine in your bed. It didn't stop the child from urinating. But now we have diapers at night so that they don't have to be woken up, which wasn't training them anyhow. It was just interfering with their sleep. That's really helpful. Also, just the way that you framed it at the beginning, it's interesting because I feel like most of the sort of mainstream parenting books you read will say, like, will basically say your child is potty trained when they sleep through the night and wake up with a dry diaper. And what you're saying is that's not the bar. They're potty trained when they are no longer wearing diapers during the day. They're continent when they no longer wet at night. It can sometimes take six months or five years after they're potty trained during the day. And, like, when parents are at this place where, let's say, her daughter you know, stops wetting the bed at night, I would say, please don't take that nighttime diaper off them until you have a straight month of this. Because, you know, a day or two, a week, and then the child goes backwards, imagine that sense of defeat. You know, make sure that they've really crossed over that line and you're out of the gray area so they feel like they've kind of achieved something and, okay, it looks like I'm not doing this anymore, then take that diaper away. Just don't do it too prematurely. So if Lizzie's daughter is invited to another birthday sleepover and she really wants to go, do you think that 
going would would just create too much anxiety before she's completely continent? Or could this be something that's just a little secret between Lizzie's daughter and the mom who's hosting the sleepover? Because I I could see myself in that situation, just just having this little secret between me and, and the little girl and just working it out between the two of us in a way that the other girls don't need to know about. But that might in itself create a really stressful situation for the little girl. It depends on how the situation is approached with the child. You know, my daughter is very clear because she has many friends, five, six years old, who were coming over for sleepovers at our beach house, and, of course, they always wore their pull-ups. We were fine with it. My daughter would say, oh, it's okay, you know what I mean, because that's the way it was set up in my house. I can't secure that for every caller, which is, you know, how how does your daughter feel about it or, you know, the your daughter, who is the playmate's friend, because if it's something where your own child is making fun of that kid, how are you going to set up this scenario? So if you know what I mean, you have to yeah. really approach it from how it's taken as a whole and what you're teaching your own children who are wetting the bed. So then if it is something where the, the child is really feeling kind of anxious or devastated, that's when you want to ask the child. I said, see how they feel about it. Do you want me to talk to her mom? Why don't we do this, sweetheart? Here's an idea. Mm-hmm. Why don't we put this in here? just in case you have an accident. If you do, why don't you talk to her mommy? You know, really set it up. Give her a plan. Give her a pathway. That leads to more confidence for her, um, as opposed to, you know, making her feel anxious and secretive. It's just she has a plan, and she can talk to an adult. And that works well, I find. Okay, this is great advice, Dr. Gold. Uh, Lizzie, I hope this is helpful to you. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. Okay, let's move on to our next segment. Hello, this is mom and dad or fighting producer Ann Hepperman. If you are Allison's parents, in-laws, aunts, uncles, close friends, or colleagues, and you do not want to know too much about Allison's sex life, please skip ahead to 50 minutes and 45 seconds. That's 50 minutes and 45 seconds to not learn about Allison's sex life. Thank you. Okay, for many women, including this one, the last thing you want to do after pushing a human being out of your vagina or having a C-section is have sex. But here it comes faster than you were prepared for, the six-week checkup, where your wonderful OBGYN checks you out, talks to you about birth control, and then, if all is well, gives you the A-OK to go home and do it. That means you are physically ready, but emotionally is another story. From reading many message boards, I can tell you that there is no one way new moms feel about sex at this stage. But Jessica and I thought it would be useful to talk about our own experiences, and we hope you'll write in with yours. So, Jessica Winter, sex after having a baby. It happened to you. (laughs) Tell me about those early days. Set the scene. So, you know, I don't think that this is a taboo subject necessarily, but I do think it's under-discussed. And... That checkup, I actually had my checkup earlier than that when I was given the the six-week A-OK. I think that might be a useful medical milestone, but I know for me personally, we marked six weeks off on the calendar. I think in our case it was Christmas Eve, which (laughs) uh, is maybe wildly appropriate or inappropriate. I'm not sure. And when we got to the time, it was just way, way, way too soon physically. I mean, I was given the physical go ahead, but it, it just, there was just no way. That venue had just hosted a major event and right. it was not ready to host anymore. And, you know, the emotional part of it was almost, I mean, the emotional part of it was just secondary. I was not physically ready. And so I was fine about it. I was like, okay, whatever, I'm not ready. But the more I think about it, I think that. 
new moms and new parents are judged in so many different ways. They're judging themselves in so many different ways. And I feel like this is one more hurdle that they feel like they have to cross. And if they don't, they're going to be disappointed in themselves. And I also think the six-week rule it's weird. It's like it's it's presented to you as like this precaution, like waiting for an hour after eating to go swimming or something. It right. feels pro forma. And I don't think it is. It also creates this false expectation for the guy who hasn't had sex in a while. And it must be kind of frustrating for him to have his expectations thwarted in this way. I, I, I was going to ask if seeing that X on the calendar was like, did that feel like pressure to you? No. I mean, I wasn't, like, super excited or anything. Like, I wasn't... I I think it was a marker that, you know, this is one aspect of our lives that is now going to get back to, quote-unquote, normal. Hooray! Uh, And it didn't. Yeah. So do do you remember when you finally did have sex? We finally had sex, I think, three and a half months after my daughter was born. And it hurt. You know, it was uncomfortable. And the second time was kind of uncomfortable. And by the third or fourth time, it started feeling good again. And it started feeling like we had a sexual relationship again. And it wasn't just something to get through. It's kind of like losing your virginity again. I mean, that's exactly how it was for me. Like, when I lost my virginity the first time, oh, my God, it hurt. And the second time, I was like, I don't know. And by the third time, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Yeah. It was, it, I mean, it surprised me how, how cleanly it mapped on to, to that experience of, of, of first having sex. And do you remember between the six weeks and the three and a half months, was, there, was it like a sort of, was it a conversation that you guys were having? Like, should we tonight? Or was it just like it was just off the table? Off the table for both of you, off the table for you? The first time we tried, I was like, no, like, we're not, this is not going to happen for a while. Yeah. And my husband could not have been, I mean, not that he should get a gold star for not pressuring me about it. Right. Like, come on. But like, you know, credit where credit is due. He could not have been kinder or more supportive about it, even though I know he was like climbing the walls at that point. Right. So my own s- situation was that John did not want to have sex at all during any of my pregnancies. It was just like he couldn't do it. I don't, didn't want to do it. I don't know. He n- couldn't exactly verbalize it or articulate it. I hated that. It made me feel kind of, you know, gross and bigger and uglier than I already felt. <laughs> but did you also want to have sex? Like, I did. did you, yeah. I was, during my pregnancies, I was quite horny. Uh, yeah, I was but too. once the baby came out, he was, I mean, he was totally, completely ready. I actually have like a very clear memory of coming home from my six week checkup after Harry with the official permission. And he was basically just like waiting for me. <laughs> and I was, you know, not interested at all. I mean, it had flipped. Um, but I felt like, okay, this is like the thing I should do now. Yeah. That six week yeah. thing really did actually like, I guess, feel like pressure to me or like obligation. And it hurt a little. It was, I don't remember it being, like, super painful, but it just seemed like something I should, regardless, like, something I should suck up. None of this was coming from John. I don't want to imply, like, that he was, he did, he also was not pressuring me. I could tell. I, I knew he was in the yeah. mood. I could have said, <laughs> no thanks. But this was, like, the running commentary in my head, I think, was, mm. like, you should do this, Allison. It is time. Yeah, me too. Um, but I definitely didn't feel attractive or sexy, and I did not like my post-pregnancy body, which made it harder to be um, in the mood. But the main thing I remember from sex in those early days after having a baby was the boob issue, which was like John would not go near mine for fear of accidentally like getting some milk on his hands or, God forbid, <laughs> in his mouth. But in order to prevent the milk squirting, I would always wear my stupid night bra with those like absorbent 
breast pads. Did you? I don't remember it well. Yes. Um, So every time our bodies would like get close, you could hear that like crinkling sound of those breast pads getting like a little bit mushed up. And I hated that. And I'm guessing that he didn't love that either. And so we switched roles essentially from pregnancy from the like 10 months of pregnancy to the however many months afterwards of having the baby when I was not interested. Yeah. One thing I do remember also is asking him if it felt different down there because I was whatever I was feeling I also was like concerned or focused on like how it felt for him and didn't mm-hmm. feel different uh, and he said no and I didn't believe him and I've never asked him again and after the third baby I imagine it must feel much different mm-hmm. especially like if I divulge the way that my pee is <laughs> there's no way that it doesn't feel different. I mean I know they're like it's it's, it's a it's more complicated situation down there but um so I was thinking about that last night as I read a great old slate piece that Claire Lumberg wrote a few years ago about state-subsidized vaginal strengthening classes in France. I think her words were that they were classes to retrain your vagina after labor that the government amazingly pays for. And she's she guesses that the government's doing this in part because France isn't squeamish like we are here about lady parts and is comfortable recognizing that women could use some help down there after labor. And in part because France wants its women to get back to the business of having sex with their husbands and relatedly in part because they want couples to get back to the business of having another kid. America would never do this. But I'm curious if if you could get free vaginal strengthening classes or if you could have when, you know, Devin was young, would you have done that? Is that was that part of was that at all part of the calculation was like some of your disinterest linked to feeling like your vagina was out of shape? Um, I mean, I think the program that Claire writes about that we'll link to on our show page is so wonderful simply for the fact that it acknowledges that something insanely traumatic has happened downstairs and it should maybe be paid more attention to than just, you know, the pro forma six week. Yep, you're good. Like, I mean, even if the classes don't work, even if the classes are a stupid waste of time, the fact that the classes honor that trauma that's happened to you is is wonderful and probably feels really empowering, even if the classes themselves aren't, you know, helping you get back into shape. You know, I was reading up about this last night. And I mean, part of the problem downstairs isn't just that you are recovering. I mean, I tore, I had two stitches, I got off really easily, you know, lots, lots of women have have much worse tearing than I did. And I, you know, it took me three and a half months to feel like I was recovered again. But an, another problem is that your estrogen levels are really low, especially if you're nursing, because estrogen interferes with your milk supply. So estrogen is the thing that's pumping blood to your genitals. E- estrogen is the thing that's increasing your vaginal lubrication. So even though you're this picture of fecundity and you've right. just given birth and, you know, you are fertile goddess mother, you're also kind of menopausal in some respects. And that, you know, makes a lot of sense in terms of where your sex drive is and how you're feeling about your body. You know, it's not just like the outside of your body. It's it's also like what's going on inside. You also, I mean, this is stating the obvious and it's probably belaboring, but you have this incredible, intimate, sensual, touchy relationship with this tiny little human being. And, you know, there's this phrase that you see a lot on message boards, touched out, I feel touched out. And that's definitely um, how I felt the first few months, certainly the, you know, the entirety of my maternity leave. However, I wasn't thinking about sex during this stage as necessarily something that was going to be so incredibly like hot and fulfilling and awesome for me. Like I was definitely not in a martyr like way, but like I was definitely thinking about it in terms of 
our relationship yep. holistically, like in terms of sex being a central, extremely important part of our relationship. And I was also just thinking about Adrian because I love him and right. I want him to be happy. And so I was kind of putting off the part where I would be the, the person who was also being fulfilled. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound super, like, self-sacrificial or something because it no, didn't feel I think that, that way. Sounds, I mean, I think that makes sense. And that's why people do things like say we're going to have sex every Tuesday or whatever because it, like, seems like this thing that you should – or it is this thing, I would argue, that you should do yeah. for your marriage. But you don't always want to do it. And that's even more, you know, extreme when you've just had a kid and you're yeah. exhausted. And I think, you know, we have, like, this stereotype of our husbands. And I said that, that John was, like, rearing to go when I got home. But – by having by after like having Wally and we were like our lives were just like so incredibly exhausting. I very strongly remember him not being in the mood. Yeah, I think like I we had a a night in a hotel when Wally was like two months old, and you know it was not we were not neither of us were into it at this at the like Soho Grand for his fortieth birthday. We were just exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. It's not just the you know the woman who maybe isn't into it at first, although I think it's probably more extreme. But I would like to hear from fathers. And I did read a little last night. There was a study. There have been several small studies. There was a larger study of men in the Philippines presented last year that found, just like some of the earlier smaller studies, that it's not just new mothers. New fathers experience a drop in testosterone and have less sex. Though the connection was a little bit odd. So I was a little confused about it's possible that the men were having less sex because the women didn't want to. But as much as we'd like to hear from new moms on this topic, I really do. We really do want to hear from the dads and would love to read some dad letters on next week's show about what those early months are like in terms of your interest in sex, in terms of how you thought about your wife's body and what her, what you wanted from her or what you wanted from your sexual relationship. Uh, you know, sex after when we first listeners, when we first started talking about doing this segment, I, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to do sex after having a baby or just like sex after kids. And that is just like a huge, massive (laughs) topic that gets into far more than like the things that we're talking about here and has many stages. And I mean, I, you know, that I don't know about yet either. Um, so this, I think these like, you know, these, these early, this conversation about early days is, is especially useful if you're like I hope for for new parents or for parents who are both or who are about to have kids to like understand that their expectations not that, that their expectations should be adjusted but that whatever they're experiencing and if they're not in the mood and that six week you know cutoff is not you know a rule for everyone or yeah I think I think the best public service we could possibly do is to change the conversation so that the six week mark does not become the be all end all. I would love for OBGYNs and I love my OBGYNs so much. We received extraordinary care from her and from her practice. But I would love nothing better if the conversation started being six weeks is the earliest possible date you will possibly want to or be able to have sex. And if it's three months, that's fine. And if it's six months, that's fine. And if it takes, you know, a year for things to completely feel normal again, that is okay and normal. And, you know, feel free to talk about it. Feel free to, you know, come to me with questions about it. That would be great. Because that way, the people who are raring to go at six weeks will feel like sexually supercharged, like Marvel heroes. Like, oh, my God, I had sex at six weeks. And then the people who don't, which I get the impression anecdotally is a lot of people, people. um, aren't going to feel any way about it. And it'll become kind of a not a meaningless number, but a number to which you do not ascribe success or failure. 
Okay, this is our new... Jessica and Allison's new program is A Year Until Sex, and men of America are, are so excited about this. Okay, we'll see what Dan thinks when he comes back next week. Okay, great. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, I'm going to start since mine is very sad, and I don't want to end the show on a really awful note. So my recommendation is that you, A, read a horrifying story in the New York Times from earlier this week about an illegal daycare, an allegedly illegal daycare, Karen Soho, uh, where a three-month-old child died on his first day. It's incredibly sad. And then B, please find out about how daycare is regulated in your state. And if you have children, please make sure you are sending them to licensed, legit daycare providers. The details of the story are, you know, still thin. So I don't know. We don't know exactly what happened at this daycare or to this child. But um, in New York, for instance, there are rules governing the training of daycare employees, the ratio of employees to children, and hygiene and feeding standards. And the Times story makes it clear that the unlicensed Soho daycare, you know, talked the talk in on message boards and, you know, said all the lovely things and very possibly meant all the lovely things parents want to hear about nurturing child care. But they were not licensed and therefore should not have been caring for anyone's child. Uh, As one of the quoted experts says in the Times piece about how many parents think when choosing a daycare, understandably, they think, quote, what's most in the parents' mind is, does this person seem warm and caring? Uh, And this expert says those are all that's an important thing, but they should be part of a program that's meeting the regulatory standards like warm and caring doesn't cut it. So please do not just go on gut feel or a friend's recommendation. Make sure whoever and whatever provider is caring for your child is legal and licensed and meeting all the standards of care. That is my recommendation. Jessica. I'm going to do a little bit of a callback to our sex after baby talk and and recommend a novel that that covers a little bit of the same ground. Um, it's called Afterbirth by Elisa Albert. Afterbirth is a really raw and funny and and slightly scary novel uh, about what happens to you that first year after having your first baby, in terms of your ambitions, your relationship with your partner, your relationship to yourself, your friendships. It's a really great book about female friendship between two new mothers. It was good because I I recognized a lot of my own experience in it, and a lot of it I flat out did not recognize at all because the book really bravely pushes into darker, nastier, more misanthropic places. Um, And I liked that. It felt really liberating. Um, It's also a very funny laugh-out-loud-on-the-subway kind of book. It's very acerbic. And I recommend it. It's called Afterbirth by Elisa Albert. And that's our show. Please email us at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Jesse Chazen-Tabor. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guest, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Thanks to Dr. TJ Gold from Tribeca Pediatrics. Thank you so much, Jessica Winter, for co-hosting with me this week. Thank you, Allison. This was so much fun. Thank you to Dan for taking the week off and allowing Jessica the opening for Jessica to co-host. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>